You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, it took a year and 11 days, because I definitely counted, but as of recording this episode, I have just gotten home after seeing my first movie in a movie theater since the before times. If you're wanting to get in on this, some tips that I learned going to the theater today are definitely give yourself like 20 extra minutes before the posted showtime. You're going to think there's a lot of trailers. There's not a lot of trailers right now. There's not a lot of movies coming out right now. And also the social distancing measures make it a little more difficult to get through lines and things. I went to an AMC and even with A-List, it took quite a bit longer. You don't realize how much of getting popcorn and soda involves communal spaces until they all get closed to prevent you from catching a virus. For example, the popcorn butter at my AMC is usually one of those like machines where you just load it on by yourself. But now they've got it in a little two ounce condiment tub you have to ask for, which just makes you feel guilty when you're dumping it on popcorn. All condiments are also handed out by staff to keep the fewest amounts of hands out of the equation. Seating is great because there's no one on either side of you, which as an introvert who hates sitting next to strangers in the movies because you have no idea how loud they're going to be, I have misophonia, so loud chewers are my ninth circle of hell, or God forbid, someone is texting on their brighter than the sun cell phones, so being guaranteed my little bubble is just tops. And watching a movie with the mask on as a glasses wearer was not nearly as annoying as I thought it would be, though I do have some of that anti-fog spray that really helps out. What movie did I see? Well, I saw Tenet, which was as confusing and convoluted as was advertised. But honestly, at this point, if you had let me go to a movie theater just to watch Gary Busey scream the phone book at me, I would have gone. Because I'm a giant movie nerd, I had to have my first movie in over a year be an IMAX and 70mm ordeal. Seeing something in IMAX was fun, but my ears are definitely not used to a Christopher Nolan amount of volume. After a year of really only wearing headphones for longer than an hour or so, except for when I make this podcast and the two times I was on a plane this year. Other than that, I'm a medium volume kind of girl if I'm at home because I like to be respectful of my neighbors as much as possible. Those who listen to this podcast weekly know that that is a one-way street situation. As far as Tenet the movie goes, if you like Christopher Nolan, you'll like this movie. And if you don't like Christopher Nolan, this movie will only cement that opinion. Tenant is essentially Inception on Ritalin and steroids. It is super fun in IMAX, though. The sound on a Christopher Nolan movie may be dodgy, but he knows a good cinematographer when he sees one. Anyway, on to today's topic. This week, we continue our true crime month with the mysterious death of one of the pioneers of early cinema and the father of the Western film. Thomas Ince created the foundation of the studio system, which at the time of his death was ironically crushing his business as an independent producer. Everything came to a head for him during a yacht party, from which Thomas allegedly disembarked early and later died suddenly of heart failure. Or did he? 
The events circling around Ince's death sparked a slew of tabloid scandals that rocked Hollywood. Normally, we don't go too deeply into conspiracy theories on this podcast, but the number of firsthand accounts to the contrary of the series of events are pretty difficult to ignore. What actually happened to Thomas Ince? Was it a heart issue like his death certificate states, or was something more nefarious afoot? Today, we'll be going over the facts and the fiction surrounding the death of Thomas Ince. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Thomas Ince was dead. After a night of partying aboard newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst's yacht, the Oneida, Ince allegedly got extremely ill, came ashore to Del Mar, where he'd been treated by a hotel physician, before taking a train home to Los Angeles the following day. On November 19, 1924, the day after returning to Los Angeles, Ince passed away from heart failure. In the months and years following the movie mogul's death, the rumor mill swirled around what happened on the yacht. The night Ince suddenly disembarked. Thomas Ince was born into a show business family on November 16, 1880. His parents, both British immigrants, moved the family from their Rhode Island home to Manhattan in order for the matriarch and patriarch to pursue acting. John and Emma, Thomas's parents, both found work as actors, as did his older brothers, John E. and Ralph. Thomas would eventually join the family business, starting an unsuccessful vaudeville company in the early 1900s called Thomas H. Ince and His Comedians. In 1907, he would meet and marry his wife, Eleanor Kershaw. William S. Hart, a former employee of Ince's, got him film acting work for the Biograph Company, which had been founded by William K. Dixon, Thomas Edison's former assistant turned rival. There, Ince would meet his future partner, D.W. Griffith, who directed him in several films. Soon after, Griffith hired Ince as a production coordinator, and Ince found work not only at Biograph, but at Carl Lemley's Universal Pictures predecessor, Independent Motion Pictures Company, or IMP. When a director couldn't complete his work on an IMP film, Ince sold his skills to Lemley and was hired to complete the one reel short. From then on, Ince was directing films full-time. Ince became a part of the mass exodus to Hollywood to prevent getting sued by Thomas Edison and the Motion Picture Patents Company. He quit his job at IMP and walked into the offices of the New York Motion Picture Company, whom had already set up their West Coast offices in Hollywood. The studio was called Bison Park and was located in Edendale, which is modern-day Echo Park. Ince packed up his young family and moved west in 1911. Wanting to direct Western films and finding the Edendale scene a little too restrictive, Ince searched for a new location that would allow him more flexibility. This brought him to a 460-acre plot of land near Sunset Boulevard and Pacific Coast Highway, which was eventually called Bison Ranch. Ince rented the land by the day until he had made enough money to buy the ranch for himself about a year later, and through NYMP, he leased an additional 18,000 acres in modern-day Pacific Palisades. The Miller 101 Bison Ranch, or Inceville as it would be christened, was the first movie studio that resembles a modern-day backlot. Facilities on site included stages, production offices, a commissary capable of serving hundreds of employees, prop houses, dressing rooms, and the like. 
What instead next changed the way films were made forever. In 1913, a film was controlled by the director and cameraman, but instead, Ince put the producer in charge of seeing a film from start to finish. He was also the first to hire a different person in each role. Screenwriter, director, camera, editor, etc. were all done by different people. Doing this allowed these feature craftspeople to improve and hone their skills to specific jobs. Essentially, Ince did away with the jack-of-all-trades mentality that had been in place pretty much since the genesis of cinema. This also enabled films to be made much faster, and in the first year of this process alone, Inceville had churned out 152 real films. Soon, Ince would step away from directing to focus on producing. In 1915, Harry Culver, a real estate mogul, convinced Ince to move his operation to current-day Culver City. Culver had been impressed with Ince's productions, having seen him shooting a Western. Ince left NYMP in July and partnered with D.W. Griffith and Max Sennett to form the Triangle Motion Picture Company. The land the studio was built on is now part of the Sony Pictures lot, which used to be the MGM lot. The success of Griffith's controversial film The Birth of a Nation had given them the revenue to build this lot. The Triangle Motion Picture Company became the first vertically integrated studio, the system that would eventually morph into the studio system. This allowed the studio to become the most dynamic show in town, and as a result, they attracted all of the best talent in town. Ince would break out on his own in 1918, selling his shares to Griffith and Senate. Three years later, the studio would be absorbed into Goldwyn Studios, which later merged with two other studios to become MGM. Thomas Ince took a break from running a studio to help Adolf Zucker develop an early Paramount Pictures, but quickly found himself yearning to be back in charge. Ince purchased a plot of land not far from the Triangle Studios and formed Thomas H. Ince Studios in 1919, which he would operate for the next five years. The mansion that Thomas built on the land was modeled after George Washington's Mount Vernon home and is to this day a Culver City landmark, though now the mansion bears the name Culver Studios and currently houses Brooks Films, Mel Brooks Production Company. Thomas Ince, if he had lived longer, would likely have become a victim of the studio system he unintentionally helped form. Now an independent producer as the Hollywood studio system came into prominence in the early to mid-1920s, independent producers like Ince soon found it difficult to procure distributors for their films. Remember that this was the time that all of the movie studios also owned the movie theaters and therefore controlled the programming at said theaters. Not from a lack of trying, Ince never again possessed the power he did in the 1910s. Now on to the juicy stuff. Ince's death due to rumors from those that were present either on the yacht or on the dock when he disembarked, have been the source of scandal and mystery, despite his untimely death looking like a cut-and-dry case on paper. Firstly, here's the official, squeaky clean, void of any and all scandal avoiding anyone else at the party despite it clearly being an at least partially fabricated story. Thomas Ince and William Randolph Hearst had been working on a deal in which Hearst would use Ince's film studio for his film productions. While visiting Ince at his home on November 15, 1924, William Randolph Hearst invited him out on his yacht for the weekend to celebrate Ince's 44th birthday, which was the following day on the 16th. 
they would not only celebrate Ince's day of birth, but also the finalization of their contract. Ince took a train to San Diego the following day and joined the other revelers the following morning on the yacht. By dinner time, Ince was complaining of indigestion. A known sufferer of peptic ulcers, Ince had consumed two forbidden things from his dietary restrictions list, salted almonds and champagne. You know, the death cocktail. A doctor was present on board, a Dr. Goodman, whom was a licensed but non-practicing physician. He examined Ince when he began complaining of the indigestion. The good doctor recommended that Ince go ashore, which he did, and the two traveled by train to nearby Del Mar, where a second doctor and nurse treated him at a local hotel. From the hotel, Ince sent for his wife and personal doctor, Dr. Ida Glasgow, whom both traveled to Del Mar with Ince's oldest son, William. The group fetched Ince, then traveled back to Los Angeles, where he died in his home on November 19th. Thomas Ince was 44 years old. Dr. Glasgow signed the death certificate, citing heart failure as the reason for Ince's demise. You know, from the indigestion. Seems pretty cut and dry, right? A tragic end to such an important historical figure of film. Well, his death was not so random if you believe the rumors of the less rich and famous individuals that were present on the yacht that night. The morning after Thomas Ince's death, the Los Angeles Times published a slightly different version of events than the ones we just discussed. Movie producer shot on Hearst Yacht, the headlines read, though this headline had disappeared by the evening edition of the paper, which cited Ince's cause of death as the official heart failure, as well as health issues stemming from a prior car accident. And now it's possible that a bad rumor ran rampant, but it turns out that these rumors didn't come from randos, but in fact from people very close to the source. According to valet Toresh Kano, whom was fellow partygoer Charlie Chaplin's valet at the time, he claimed that he saw Thomas Ince when he came ashore and claimed that he saw Ince bleeding from the head from a bullet wound. This version of events spread like wildfire through the Japanese domestic workers throughout Beverly Hills. A similar story was also told by Charles Letterer, whom was the nephew of Hearst's longtime not-so-secret mistress and partygoer that evening, Marion Davies, whom Hearst had been with since she was 19. Hearst would have been about 53 when they met, but we don't have enough time to go through how shady that dude was in this episode, though I'm sure we'll get into him in more detail somewhere down the line. Anyway, Letterer claimed that everyone on the boat was sworn to secrecy and or paid off in regards to what happened that night. And what happened that night is that Ince was shot. But why did Thomas Ince get shot? Well, if the rumors are to be believed, Hearst caught Marion Davies in a compromising position. Angry, he attempted to kill her lover, but shot Ince accidentally due to the choppy waters that evening. Davies was allegedly cheating on Hearst with none other than Charlie Chaplin. Hearst found out about it before the party and invited Chaplin onto the yacht that weekend so Chaplin could see how happy Hearst made Marion and that would make Chaplin back off. Has that plot ever worked outside of a crappy romance movie or a country song? Also, we haven't talked about Chaplin a lot in this podcast yet, but what I know about him, I really doubt that would have worked. Anyway, allegedly, Hearst caught Chaplin and Marion in a compromising position during the party, and then he stormed out to get his gun, which, depending on the source, may or may not have been diamond-encrusted. Rich people, right? 
Anyway, because the sea was unpredictable that night and everyone had been partying it up for several hours at this point on a legal hooch, that when Hearst aimed the gun, he missed Chaplin and shot Ince instead. A slight variation of his story is that Hearst caught Ince with Marion, though in that version he obviously didn't miss. Either way, Ince got shot and that's why he died. The shrapnel of a lover's spat. A month after Ince's death, a New York Times article reported that a San Diego district attorney determined that Ince's death was heart failure. The end. But the rumors persisted. Ince's former business partner, D.W. Griffith, would remark in later years about the incident on the yacht, though he was not present that evening. Quote, All you have to do to make Hearst turn white as a ghost is mention Ince's name. There's plenty wrong there, but Hearst is too big to touch. The district attorney's office in Los Angeles ended up investigating the situation after San Diego considered the case closed. Their, quote, investigation was an interview with one person and one person only, Dr. Goodman, who just so happened to be a Hearst employee. He stated that Ince was complaining about chest pain on the initial train ride down to San Diego, something that had been noted as indigestion up until this point. The reason they only interviewed one person is that there may have been alcohol involved in the incident on the yacht. Let me rephrase. There was definitely alcohol involved in the incident. If nothing else, it was reported that Ince drank champagne that evening. If that was the case, it would mean a lot of trouble for a lot of important, aka rich people. Why? Well, it was 1924 and that meant prohibition was in full effect. That meant the sale and transport of alcohol was illegal. Apparently, it was a not-so-secret fact that the Oneida was chock full of hooch and alcohol had played a major part in that evening's incident. The knowledge that a lot of important rich and famous people were involved in a boozy accidental murder perpetrated by one of the richest men in the world at the time would not have been a good look on anyone, so it was probably best that the issue just went away. Thomas Ince was cremated a mere two days after his death, with a viewing beforehand so that loved ones and colleagues could say their final goodbyes. Not one person at that viewing mentioned seeing a bullet wound, but I'd imagine it's possible for an undertaker to cover that up. His ashes were later scattered at sea on Christmas Eve. His beloved film studio was sold not long after. In the weeks and days that followed this, claims were made that Ince's wife Nell had fled to Europe shortly after her husband's death to escape from the clutches of Hearst, but in reality she left seven months after his death for some R&R. Also making her seem suspicious in her husband's death was the fact that there was proof that he had set up a trust fund for Nell and paid off the mortgage to an apartment building she owned called Chateau Elise. Nell was already a fairly wealthy woman and it's not like she needed the money, so why did her send her so much more? He barely knew her. Some saw this as hush money for what actually happened on the yacht, which she vehemently denied. She'd also paid that mortgage off before her husband's death. Increasingly frustrated over the Hearst rumors surrounding her husband's death, she remarked, quote, Do you think I would have done nothing if I even suspected that my husband had been victim of foul play on anyone's part? Fun fact, Chateau Elise still stands to this day, though it is now called the Manor Hotel, a religious retreat for the Church of Scientology. 
Movie columnist Luella Parsons was also on the yacht when Ince was allegedly shot slash had indigestion. Luella was employed at one of Hearst's papers, and suddenly, if you believe the rumors, she was given a lifetime contract and expanded syndication after the weekend was over. This was later proved to be untrue as a contract that expanded her readership had been allegedly signed a year before Ince's death. Or so the legend goes. When it came to the alleged murderer himself, years later, Hearst spoke to a journalist about the rumor that he had murdered Ince. Quote, not only am I innocent of this Ince murder, he said, so is everybody else. If you'd like to see a fictionalized account of this mysterious weekend, the Peter Bogdanovich film Cat's Meow from 2001 is based on Charles Letterer's accounts of events and focuses on the scandal surrounding the chaplain of it all. There are a lot of creative liberties taken, but it's not a bad movie by any means. It's currently free on YouTube if you want to watch it in the US. Link will be in the show notes. One last thing, adding to the mystery, is Murder at San Simeon, a 1996 novel by Patricia Hearst, who just so happens to be William Randolph's granddaughter, and co-writer Cordelia Francis Biddle, which is a mystery based on the 1924 death of Thomas Innes. This fictitious version presents Chaplin and Davies as lovers, and Hearst as the jealous old man unwilling to share his mistress. Fan fiction for your grandpa and his friends? Or maybe she's dulling out some family secrets on the sly? To this day, nobody's talking, and frankly, no one present that evening can, as those revelers from that weekend are all long in the grave. Whether Thomas Ince died tragically at his home from a heart attack or was murdered on Hearst's yacht remains a mystery to this day. Given the fancy-pants individuals that circulated around him the evening of his death, that is hardly surprising. What we do know is that the man responsible for motion pictures as we know them today has either been forgotten or his legacy is overshadowed by his strange death. Either way, let's pour one out for Mr. Thomas Ince. Thank you for the movies. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. Bring it up at your next virtual happy hour to your friends, or hell, pandemic's ending. Bring it up in person to your actual friends at an actual bar. Help a girl out. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. I've also got a Venmo tag, which is at Tinsel Factory Pod, if you want to send me a little something-something over there. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're wrapping up Murder Month with a double header. The scandal surrounding the death of Virginia Rappay in Fatty Arbuckle's San Francisco hotel room and the mysterious unsolved murder of director William Desmond Taylor. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.